Hebrews chapter 7, please. I think that what I have to say today is, is very simple, but at the same time it is um, needed. And so I want to get right on it. I do not want us to waste any time um, uh, just in, in preparation beforehand. Let's, let's read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, in verse 26, the writer of Hebrews says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Let's pray. Father, I... I, I come to you now, Father God. My heart is so heavy about this, Father God. I'm so convicted about my own ways, Father God. But yet, what I see around me, there's so much more we must do, Father God. And then I'm, I'm asking you now, Father God, that this becomes something today that, um, that enlists the whole church, Father. We've all got to hear this. We've all got to be responsible for it, Father God. And absolutely none of us, Father, can sit back and ask and act as if we have no part in this, Father. Because either this truth comes down upon us like a hammer, Father God, or it is a torch in our hearts. And, and there's no in-between now, Father God. So I'm praying now, Father, that though this is simple, it's not complicated, Father God. There's nothing, there's nothing maybe beautiful about it, Father God. What I'm praying now, God, is that as I, as I preach this, that it is the simple truth at exactly the right time. For, for unbelievers who might be in this room, Father God, but for a believing church to hear. God, we all have to hear the gospel, Father God. Throughout our lives, you, we know that we have to hear it and, and our hearts respond to it over and over and over again. First in terror and then eternally in love, Father God. So please bless us now that for some in the terror of the gospel, they will hear good news, Father God, and will frighten them, Father. And that for others, God, they will hear it as, as just as the as the words of love from a God who, who died, that they might be made whole. So please bless us now in the name of Christ Jesus in His precious blood, that the church, the whole church, God, hears what is said today. Please God bless us now in the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Now, in Why Revival Tarries, um, maybe the greatest book on revival outside of the Bible itself. Leonard, Leonard Ravenhill wrote this. He said, oh, that believers would become eternity conscious. So now I want to start there in the midst of even a quote and say this is where we're aiming everything right now at this moment. That believers would be eternity conscious. Do you hear me? You have a stake in this verse. If we're trying to come in and speak to everybody, if we're trying to speak to both the believing church and the unbelieving church, if we're trying to speak to those who, who have embraced Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and those who have not, then we need to engage you also. Church, you've got a part to play in this. And in more ways than not, the true brunt of this falls upon your shoulders. The long-term impact of anything faithful that I might have to say today is on you first and foremost. So church, please listen. I'm going to let Ravenil speak to you first. He says if we could live every moment of every day under the eye of God. If we did every act in the light of the judgment seat. If we sold every article in the light of the judgment seat. If we prayed every prayer in the light of the judgment seat. If we tithed all our possessions in the light of the judgment seat. 
if we preachers prepared every sermon with one eye on damned humanity and the other on the judgment seat, then we would have a Holy Ghost revival that would shake this earth and that in no time at all would liberate millions of precious souls. So, in, in building on that foundation, I have demands to make today. Not that there aren't on me, because there are. The conviction that's in my heart began first with me and now extends to the entire church that I lead. You've both followed my bad example and in many ways we've all collectively followed each other's bad example. And today is a day in which that must change. First, have informed belief. It means we're talking about the gospel today and just because you're saved, it doesn't mean you can take this one off. The reality is this, is that the only people who love and appreciate the power of the gospel are saved people. The only people that can rightly amen the gospel are saved people. We used to live in a time that believed that. We used to believe, we used to live and believe in a time in church in which we thought sermons were wasted if they did not directly address the cross. We've decided that sermons that don't directly address the cross are somehow better for the church. And that's nonsense. So have informed belief. Gloat. Glory. Love. The, 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 the truth of the gospel. Have a bold witness. Your share of the gospel is that once you've heard it, you now must share it. Your stake in this, the skin in the game for the church, is that the church is now boldly responsible for what they've heard. Somehow along the way, decades ago, we decided that being quiet and minding our business in the world and never speaking the gospel was the right and polite thing to do. And that's the devil ruling over the church. We are not to go idly by with the world. We cause offense because the gospel always causes offense. For it does not believe, it offends every single time. The only time the gospel doesn't believe is when it's not taught, when it's not preached, when it's not shared. We've got a bold witness. Constant prayer for the lost. We pray for everything in the world. Let somebody in this church get a hangnail and we will pray over that. But we don't pray in any way but a passive way for the lost. And I'll be blunt with you, there are plenty of people in this world that we know that are going to get cancer and suffer and die and be better for it because they're in glory. The real people that are at stake are those who are going to one of these days are going to live long and foolish lives and then die and burn in a sinner's hell. Those are the ones that we really have to make sure we pray for. Bless the lost. We tack it on the end of every prayer. Of every prayer. No, we need to have constant prayers for the lost. Constant prayers. And then finally, the willingness to risk and give all for the truth of the gospel. We have become a risk-averse conservative people who just really don't like radical things. And the reality is this, is that the gospel gets people burned. The gospel costs people their heads. When you embrace the gospel, when you live the gospel, it's all risk. It's all risk. People are going to hate you for what you believe. And that is okay because what we believe saves us. It's like a sick person hating, hating medicine. Sick people love the medicine that makes them well. 
They go on and on and on about what this doctor found for them and now they're well. Well, the gospel is the medicine that made us well. And we're to trade everything for it. We've been given access to the Christ by no great feat of our own and our response must be in kind because it cost us nothing to receive everything because we could do nothing to earn it because our works because our works are nothing but filthy rags we now are supposed to respond that way the problem i have with this beginning in my life beginning here right here behind this pulpit but going to everyone is this is that we'll work our fingers to the bone because we don't want to be seen as a lazy bum we'll work and work and work we will Parent our children night and day. If you are sick, you will get up and clean up theirs, won't you? Mama's never really sick, is she, if somebody else is sick? And I'll tell you what, for a lot of us daddies, daddy's never sick unless, unless, sick, unless somebody else is sick. Because a lot of us in here, we're right there. Right there. We weren't. We're not all that old-fashioned. Even our hobbies are full speed. And the only thing in our lives we make excuses about is how we serve the Lord. If we feel like we're a bum at work, we're ashamed of ourselves. If we feel like we have let our children down, we're ashamed of ourselves. But we make constant excuses about how we serve God. The only thing that we make excuses about is that. That ought to trouble us deeply. The only lasting thing, the only thing that, well, excuse me, the most lasting thing, the thing that matters above all is how we are serving our God first. And we act like God's okay with it. It'll be all right. Baloney. Bull. It won't just be all right. The church cannot afford to sleepwalk through its faith any longer. This begins with me. I've been asleep. I am broken about it. And you have stumbled along behind me. Make no qualms about it. Jesus is truly who the world needs. The answer to every problem we see around us, to the things that trouble us, to the, to the depressing reports on the news, is the person of Jesus Christ as He makes dead men alive. Our duty is to do as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The emphasis is mine the apostle and high priest of our con confession. Now listen, the translators of the Berean Bible have a really dynamic way of saying this, and I want to share that with you. That, that term is uh, for considering Jesus. It's katanoeo, which means carefully consider. But now more dynamically translated, the Berean translation says, set your focus on Jesus Today, and The reason why I think that echoes most in me first and also in you is how much of our time is spent in which our focus is not on Jesus at all. At all. If you feel like you've been a bad mom or a bad dad, you're broken about it. 
broken. You may say, well, I did the best I could, but in your heart it is cleaved in two because your most precious blood is those children. If you, if you love your marriage and love your husband, love your wife, and you feel like you've been a bad husband or a bad wife, you're just broken to the core because of it. Broken to the very core. But yet our focus is not on Christ and we just go through life and act like, like it's okay. But it's not. It's not. It's not for me. It's not for you. Now, I'm going to ask you something. I know it's been hard to start, but I'm going to ask you. Today, please do your part to see a revival of soul winning come to our church. The way I express it this morning, the best way I can think of expressing it is this. I would, even though we continue to baptize, we have a baptism this month, it's wonderful. Continue to baptize. I'd love to see a situation in this church in which the, we never drain the water. Because somebody's always, always ready to, to submit themselves to Christ in that way. I don't mean in a way just to baptize for the sake of, of getting people wet, but I mean true, born-again believers whose lives have been conquered by Jesus who are ready to show the absolute submission to them of, of, of being in that water and showing they are dead and now they're alive. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Real soul winning. Real soul winning. Acknowledging that the overwhelming majority of people we see around us in this very town right here are as lost. They can be. And their lives indicate it. Don't, don't look at me funny. Deep down in your heart, you know. If you know Jesus, deep down in your heart, you look at me and you just shake your head sometimes, don't you? We're going to be answerable for those head shakes. We're standing at the Bema seat and answerable. Just as answerable as they will be in death, we will be in life. No one escapes justice. I'm going to do my best to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with all the fire in my belly that can be found. There's no doubt about it. I want to be tired when I finish. If the heart of Jesus beats in your frame, if you are a born-again believer given a new heart by the will and purpose of Christ, if you want to have been born again into a living faith with Jesus, then pray while I preach. Pray. Why? For unction and power and knowledge that is not my own but from above. Because the reality is this. I'm going to tell you blunt truth. Almost all of our sermons fail in this church. Now sometimes they fail because we have not prepared and we have not prayed and we have not sweated and we have not lamented. I'm talking about the pastors, the men who preach. Me specifically. Sometimes they pray because we have not done, they fail because we have not done our due diligence in prayer and study. And sometimes they fail because you fail. Sometimes they fail because you've surrendered preaching totally to us and you've forgotten to pray for it. And when it's going on, you have been somewhere else doing something else in your mind and in your heart. This notion that preaching was all about the man. It's why we're so messed up as a convention now. Because preaching's become all about the preachers. God will take a humble man without any education and overalls and he'll slay the world with the truth. Do you understand that? Billy Sunday preached and preached and maybe he could never even read. It's been surmised that he couldn't even read. No one, no one did God do more through the cross than Billy Sunday. 
It's not about a pastor's education. It's not about his personality. It's not about his looks. It's about his willingness to slay for the word and your willingness to pray for the word. And will you do that today? Please, I beg of you. Pray that people hear and fires are lit and souls are saved. Simple. Simple. Pray that souls are saved. Let me tell you, the person you're praying for right now may not be in this room, but pray for conviction. Take a copy of this sermon and give it to them. You know, you just stick them in your Bible and they stay there. I'm not saying it's the best thing in the world, but it may very well light a fire. God has done more with less than that. Make sure they come in contact with it. Take it and share it with them yourself. Set your focus on Jesus and not on your day or your desires. Today, we're going to be steel. We're going to be honed sharp. Everybody in this room pointing at the cross right now because you love Him and He dwells in you. Illustrate your new birth today. Do it today. Help, please. Because I am always in over my head and I'm especially in over my head when I speak of eternity. There's no doubt about that. One of the most pressing and easily... Let's get down to the real brass tags of this. The easiest thing in the world to prove is the incompetence and depravity of humans. It is all over the Bible. Now, I understand this. We stopped preaching this um, a, a few decades ago during my lifetime. During my lifetime. We went from men who pounded the pulpit like they were driving nails to men who thought they could speak soft and sweet and lure people into the gospel. We became schemers. We showed our lostness in the church and in the pulpit in which we thought we could sweet talk people into loving Jesus. There's nothing inside humanity by themselves that's not given by God that can ever love Christ. Ever love Him. And so we stop wanting to talk about it. Tell lost people they're lost because they'll go somewhere else. I'm going to tell you this much. If we can't tell lost people they're lost, they don't need to come here. There's no reason for a lost man or woman to come to church if they're not going to hear about their lost situation. What are they going to talk about? Their marriage? Who cares if the lost have the best marriages ever if they're going to hell? Who cares if they have the most fruitful lives and they manage their money great and they do all these things and they've got the sweetest, most loving children? Who cares? Because the reality is that they're going to go to hell. It's all a waste. It's a waste of time. So what we've got to talk about is we've got to talk about the natural situation of men and women. We've got to do that now. By virtue of the teaching of the Scriptures, and I'm going to admit a list by a man named Travis Carden, which you can look at yourself, that the sentiments are mine, but the organization's his. We can say without any hesitation that humanity is created in righteousness by God, but fallen. What God made was good. What our rebellion made is wicked. Our rebellion did it. We're ungodly in our machinations. Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes 7.29. See this alone. I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us upright. We became schemers. Men are schemers by nature because they are lost. And because they're self-dependent and not God-reliant. Here's something we have to do. I think the biggest problem in the world is not the fact that you, your lives are failures. I think the biggest problem in the world, throughout this entire world, is that so many people are successful. That struggled. 
They've always had plenty of money and plenty of time and plenty of everything. Fooled themselves into thinking they can be self-dependent and self-reliant. And what the gospel does unequivocally is make everybody God-reliant. Teaches you the precarious nature of your position where it is perched upon the thinnest device or held over a fire like a spider ready to be plunged into the embers. We are all precariously situated in the most horrible of situations. That's who we are. We are self-dependent and we're not God-reliant and God wants us to rely on Him for everything. The nature of the gospel is from sins to daily bread, we rely on God. Listen, all men are sinners, inheritors of and deserving of death, as Paul proves with his words in Romans 5, 12 and 19a. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All men sinned, therefore they all died. We see this proved throughout our lives. Everybody does what? They die. And they die because they're sinners. Me and you and our children and our grandchildren and our mamas and our daddies and our sainted little grandmothers, we were all sinners. All. In verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's disobedience has radiated outward to all people. We all inherited his disobedience. Because Adam's a sinner, we're all now born sinners. Therefore, all people are sinners. We can conclude that. There are no exceptions to this standard, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one is living is righteous before you. No one living is righteous before you. As well as in 2 Chronicles 6.23, for there is no one who does not sin. And in Isaiah 53, 6, 8, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We all have a corrupt way. We want our way in everything. That's what seems so strange to me all the time is that the sweetest people, some of the sweetest natured people, still cannot hide the fact that they really want their way in everything, can we? Because we're all like that. Starts out as a child and it never wanes in us until we are conquered by Christ. All people would rather do things their own way, pursue their own will and their own ideas instead of that of God. The Lord has condemned this behavior already when He spoke through Solomon in Proverbs 14, 14 12, saying there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Its end is the way of death. Sinners by their very definition are natural and do not and cannot hear nor obey the will of God as expressed in His Word by the Spirit because those matters are spiritually discerned from 1 Corinthians 2.14. So not only do we have our own way, we can't even understand God's way by ourselves. We have no hope even in the Scriptures by ourselves. 
even the laxest standard of behavior toward the Heavenly Father is unreachable by men and women. As Micah says in Micah 7, 2-4, The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each haunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, of, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confession is at hand. Listen, in all the world, not one single person is upright. Nobody. Nobody's upright. By themselves, no one is upright. All humans literally and figuratively wait for blood. Now, I know what you're saying. That. Think about how brutal disagreements get even among brothers. Even among sisters. Just think for a second. Don't assume this is outside the body of believers. This lingers within the body of believers. How angry we get at each other. Wait for blood. They want evil and to do it well. They want to be good at being bad. Leaders ask for a bribe. Even our governments are corrupt because of sin. Every government on all of planet earth corrupted by bribery. Corrupted by it. Great men have souls filled with evil desires. Even the great men are evil into their souls. And the very best people are briars and thorn hedges. That good people are briars. They're stickers. Now what we've discussed is just a smattering of the Bible's teaching on the stage. It's part of it. I could have gone on and on. The condition of mankind throughout the ages and to the present day. It was true in the Old Testament. It was true in the New Testament. It's true today. Wickedness beyond measure which intensifies as we progress through history aiming at a bloody and righteous ending is the only possible outcome for humanity without the intervention of God. God is going to come. He's going to come and judge with a sword in His mouth. And that is the only outcome for this. Unless God intervenes. Unless the truth wins out in lives that we see, God is coming for them. Don't understand it any other way. You and I may be thrilled when the eastern sky splits, but the blood of some is going to run cold. Because time is up and He has come for their sins. He has come to judge. The will of God for the sinner is beyond question. I, Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 18.20, he says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The Lord could not have made His statement more final than when He declares, The soul who sins shall die. It is a... Catastrophic statement for those who want to make it through this life on their own. Every sinner must die for his or her sins. Without exception, 
All this due to the wickedness of men and women. We receive credit for righteousness. He says that. He says that. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. We get credit for righteousness. But we also get devotion to destruction for wicked action. Unfortunately, our sins preclude any unwarranted mercy. That God's not just intervening into this and saying, well, I see those sins, but that's okay. Everybody sins a little bit. Because that's what we say to ourselves, don't we? Well, nobody's perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. It's not about being perfect. It's about being condemned. It's not about being perfect. It's about being a sinner and judged for our sin. It's not about being perfect. Because perfection implies we can earn it. It's about the depth of how imperfect we really are. We, Paul says in Romans 3, 9 and 23, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. If you know anything very simply about the Scriptures, there's nobody outside of Jews and Greeks. Both the chosen people and the Gentile world, which is us, are all what? Under sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us are sinners. The final conclusion that we must draw from the Scriptures, and especially from the work of Paul, expressed by the Apostle himself, is terrifying. When he writes in Romans 2.6, He will render to each one according to his works. So in this room right now, both lost and saved, He will render to us what? According to our works. If you are lost today, whether you can admit it or not, and trusting your own righteousness to please God and be spared, then you will be judged according to your works. The works of the deceit of, of the deceit, the deceased spirit and rotten heart of cadaverous men will never save them, but only condemn them. Everything that you can do on your own does nothing more than condemn you. Every good deed you could possibly do on your own does no, is nothing more than an accusation against you. Because even in doing good, we can never do good with a pure heart. Even in doing good, we'll only do good as a way of receiving credit. Thanks. We can't even be generous right by ourselves. Without the intervention of a righteous and just God, without His mercy delivered by His means, standing alone before the throne of righteousness, we will all be condemned to suffer and die. Look, it's a truth which goes unsaid too often, but must be maniacally screamed from the streets. This is offensive, and people need to hear it. and pounded from the pulpit. And it was preached by our Lord Himself in Luke 13, 3, when He said, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The opposite of the Gospel is always the same. Unless you repent, you're going to perish. If in this room today there's someone who's rejected Christ and rejected Him, unless you repent, you will perish. If there's someone in this room today who thought they could do it on their own, thought they were as good as everyone else, you're absolutely right. You're just as good as me and just as good as everyone else and just as deserving of hell and not of heaven because only Jesus can make a lost sinner ready for heaven. Only Jesus can. 
Today we cry out for the antidote to the condition of the hearts of men and women in this world. If applicable, how can we repent and be made whole in Christ? Look what Isaiah said in Isaiah 54 verse 10. He said, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. God has compassion today on the hearts and souls of His people. The case against us is daunting, but it's not greater than the blood. And it's not greater than the love of Christ. And even though we ought to be condemned and we should see a sinner's hell, the reality is this, is that the blood is still wet and mercy is still applied. And today you can have Jesus because He is compassionate. He continues to call to men and women until the number of those who are His from the foundation of the world is complete. Look, if that number had been named, then Christ would have returned. Why am I here today preaching the gospel again? Why am I here today insisting that this is the only way? Because there are lost men and women remaining in this world that God has deemed to receive truth. God has decided. So listen. Until then, mercy is found in the preaching of the gospel. Within the context of what has already been written and preached, we can find the mercy of God in the person of Christ. He's literally the epitomization and typification of the love of God for His image-bearing creation. Christ is a function of the love of God at work for people who do not deserve this love. Jesus came and died so that people that hate God could find mercy through His flesh and His blood. In Isaiah 53, 6b, we learn that the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Christ has become answerable and guilty of the sins of the entire world. The joy I, I have to tell you about is this. It's so unfair in its joy, but it's joy nonetheless. Is that what you are guilty of and you could never atone for, Jesus became guilty of and easily atoned for. Every sin nailed to the cross. Every perversion atoned for at Calvary. Every act of thievery, every lie, every idolatry, everything we could ever do as a people, Jesus Christ has paid for and infinitely more. The blood of Jesus is so perfect and so precious, it's never exhausted. I'm not here to declare anything, not even my love for you, because my love for you is not enough. The love of these pastors for you or these deacons or this church for you is not enough. The reality is this, is that God loves you enough that He crucified His Son so that you could be made whole. Because there was no other way. If He would not become guilty, you would stay guilty. But because He became guilty, you can now be free. And those who have been set free by Jesus are free indeed, never to be shackled again. The most free you could ever be, Jesus has made you today. Perfectly and infinitely free. It's not just our sins of direct action that condemn us. It's not just our sin. What we have done. What we would call those things we did. Instead we're condemned by what we do and what we fail to do. Paul teaches us in, in Romans, uh, uh, Romans 3, 10b through 12. He, he writes, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Human beings neither understand God nor seek God as we should. Here's the problem. 
is that he's everywhere. He's not a secret. If he is, he is the worst hidden secret in all the world. Because he is in fact everywhere at the same time. Despite the bold declaration of the heavens that the Lord is divine and everlasting, we ignore it for the drudgery of everyday existence. I do this every time. I can't tell you how many times I've walked the distance in 11 years between this church and, this, and, and that house in the dark. And I never look up. Never once look up. I sit here burdened or I sit here upset or I sit here joyous or I sit here numb and I, and I carry that all the way back there and I get out in the midst of all that. It's not some great beauty. It's Mississippi. We've all seen it a thousand times. It's kudzu and hedge bushes. But the depth of the magnitude of God is seen every time any human being looks up at the sky. You can express it in terms of billions and billions of years of travel, of light, if that's what you choose to do. But I express it in terms of the width and breadth and depth of the existence of God. The only way you can characterize Him is in terms of billions and billions and billions. Infinite measure. How big is He? Bigger than everything. So big He fills every space of it. Paul condemns our entire race with his truth in Romans 1, 19-20, which says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Hear what, I, what he said? God has shown this. He didn't hide it. None of it's hidden. It's there for you to see. If you don't believe me, try it. Go out tonight in the dark and look up. It's easy. Some of you live country dark, too, I might add. You'll see a lot of stars. For His invisible attributes, enabling His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You can't even stand before Him one day and lie and say, I never saw it, because He says they are clearly perceived. You are fooling yourself into thinking you didn't see it. Stop lying to yourself. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The final blow is this, is that nobody has an excuse. The isolated tribesmen in the middle of the Amazon... The, the kneeling uh, Tibetan Buddhist on top of, of the mountain in Nepal or the redneck right here in Mississippi has no excuse. Because he says so. There's no justification. No one will stand before God and have anything valid. State simply, you cannot escape what our Lord has to say on the matter. Everything around us, all creation, declares the attributes of an infinite and all-powerful God so that no one can stand before Him and pretend ignorance. You, I, nobody can pretend to be ignorant. No excuses are valid. Again, when men fail to act or to believe or to think despite all the evidence before them, Christ in His perfection filled the breach that stood between the judgment of God and the folly of men. While we were out wasting our lives, Jesus was dying for our lives. While we were out wasting our lives on things that do not matter, Jesus lived perfectly so that you don't have to. We learn the, in Romans 5, 19b, we learn that the sufficiency of Christ Jesus has made obsolete our inefficiency when Paul writes, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you don't even have to be obedient 
Because your obedience doesn't matter because you can't do it anyway. But Jesus was obedient. So now you can be made righteous. If salvation required obedience, we'd all be lost. If you've got to be good or do what's right, you're never going to do it. Because you can even do the rote things of the law, the basic things of the law. But in the end, your heart's going to be corrupt. We can't even tithe right, can we? Because even when we write the right check, the heart's not always in it, is it? We've been basically, but we've not been spiritually obedient. By the faithfulness of Christ, men and women can be saved. The perfection of the saving power of the gospel comes from the completeness of the sacrifice of Christ atoned for sins for all time to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. That's Hebrews 7.25. And to assuage the wrath of God which is rightly directed toward the sins of an entire species, the human race. He saves us to the uttermost because He lives to make intercession. Now the writer explains all this in Hebrews 7.27-28 when he writes that the great high priest Jesus Christ has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the sins of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So his sacrifice is a perfect sacrifice because he never sinned himself therefore he never had to atone for his own sins first. He offered himself, his blood, his flesh, his righteousness for us. For the law points men in their weakness as high priest but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Your future today depends on a son who was made perfect. And not on a law or a righteousness that you can fulfill on your own. The hope that is offered today is not in theology. That is a necessary expression of it. There's no doubt. We have to have theology. We have to have doctrine. We are not feelings and emotions. We are truth. Your heart can be led to feel anything. And almost anything can feel right, can it? Some of the most wrong things in the world can feel so right. We need theology. Or in a church like this, that's the culmination of it on earth. The gospel through the Spirit builds the church on earth person by person, brick by brick, on the cornerstone that is Jesus. Or in a man like me, that is the folly of it which points to God and not to people. The reality is this, if you're wanting to get saved because Brother Tony's so good, or if you keep from being saved because Brother Tony's so bad, you have missed the point. Because there's nothing about me that's saving, because I couldn't even save myself. I'm just, I was just as lost without Jesus as you were. Or maybe more so. Sin's just as black. The fact that I'm a fool just points beyond me to the cross. But in the person of a son who has made, been made perfect forever. Now the hope today in the gospel of you is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. There's one thing we do in the most simplistic of ways. Is we want to, to declare today more than anything else that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation for every single one of us. And until then, your lives will always be about you. They'll always be caught in the death spiral of self-indulgence. 
How can a law center access this vital truth as it's preached today? How can your incompetence in Christ be converted to His competence in beckoning you? Because that's what He does today. Even though it seems like it's beneath Him, Jesus Christ, first through me, prayerfully through the Holy Spirit, to your corrupted hearts, Jesus Christ right now calls out to men and women to come to Him today. We do not deserve such special attention from the Lord, but yet He gives it. The NASB translates Acts 3.19 beautifully when it says, Therefore, repent and return. Repent. Turn to God. So that your sins may be wiped away. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You're so tired because you need the presence of the Lord. You're so worn out and weary because of sin. Because you've been cut off from His presence. And today is the day in which the presence of the Lord can be visited upon your life and make you whole. Repent today of your sins and return to God by believing His gospel. Placing your faith and trust in Christ for your failings, your provision, your future, and your eternity. Trust Him with everything. The process is, a, is personal revolution which leads to conversion. That's right. There's an overthrowing in this. Jesus Christ is not going to leave your life the same. You cannot have Him and have everything in the past. In fact, He, may, he, he rightly should make all of us turn our backs on everything. Because everything is fruit of the corrupt enterprise. My job and, and my ideas and my bigotries and my passions and everything I love and everything I think, all of those things are, part, are, are fruit of a corrupt tree. What he calls today for is personal revolution, which leads to conversion. It begins when you admit that your way is the path of destruction. That everything you've amassed, even if it's a fortune, everything you've amassed, even if it made you happy, everything has been brought together, even if it seems so perfect, the reality is this, is that it is, it is laid on a foundation of, of sinking sand. And someday the foundation will, will wash away. And the house will fall. That you can echo David's words in, Psalms 18, in Psalm 18.6. He said, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From His temple, He heard my voice, and my cry to Him reached His ears. In your distress, from your seed or from this altar, in private conversation with myself, another pastor of this church or a trusted believer, call upon the Lord. Cry for help and He will hear you. Not in fancy words or depth of knowledge, but in the honesty of a broken and contrite heart which is never despised by God. God is not interested in how many verses you can quote. God is not interested in how deep you think your knowledge is. What God is interested in is getting down to the very heart of the matter with you. God is not interested in just remaking your mind, but God is interested in starting with your heart. And right now, today, He is prepared to give a new heart and a new life to someone. In the honesty of a broken and contrite heart which is never despised by God. The call today is simple. Bear your soul today to the God who offers healing before it is too late. Today, if you're an unbeliever, you have to admit you're an unbeliever. Then today is the day of salvation. The day in which you may cry out to God. And God will 
definitely here. But believers today, listen to me. You have a responsibility because you've been here. Because you've heard. Today is the day. Today is the day that you begin praying in earnest for men and women to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. To have new hearts and new minds and new lives and new eternities. Today is the day in which you get serious about your mission in this church. Please. Because lives hang in the balance. 